ready? Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. And now the Kiddush blessing over the cup. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech Olam Borei Pri Hagahafen Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Amen. And now the blessing over the bread. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu Melech Olam, Hamotzi Lechem Min Haaretz. Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Amen. All of that. <laughs> now, husbands, if you will bless your wives. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for the wonderful wife that you've given me. And Father, we thank you and I pour out a blessing upon all the wives on this Sabbath day. I pray that you bless her, strengthen her, and encourage her as she rises in the night to see about the ways of the household. And I pray that you strengthen her as she teaches and educates our children. Father, I pray that you pour out your very best blessing upon her and that you would encourage her in everything that she does. Let her know how worthy of praise and honor that she is. And Father, I confess with all of my heart that I love her and I thank you, Lord, for her. We also bless all of the widows and orphans, those without a father or a husband at this time as well. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. All right, now let's bless our sons. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. Amen. 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 Let's bless our daughters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ruth and as Esther. Amen. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shalom. Please join us for the Baruchu, the call to worship. Baruchu et Aronai Hamvorach, Baruch Aronai Hamvorach Leolam Vaed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michamocha. Michamocha. Ba'eli Madonai Michamocha Nedar Bakodesh Nora Tehilot 
blessing of Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam, asher natan lanu et derech ha-Yeshua ba-Mashiach Yeshua. Altogether, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Vishamru. Vishamru v'nei Yisrael et ha-Shabbat, la-asot et ha-Shabbat la-doratam barit olam, b'nei uvayan b'nei Yisrael oti le-olam, Keshishet yamin asa aronai et hashemayim va'et haralets uvayom hashvi'i shvat vayinefash. Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema. If you would all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Baruch Shem Kevod Malchuto, Le'olam va'ed Yeshua HaMashiach Hu Adonai Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Aronai Elochecha. Altogether, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen. This is a promise. 
Father to his people. If my people, if my people who are called by my name, by my name will humble themselves and pray. And if my people, if my people who are called by my name, by my name will humble themselves and seek my face. And if they'll turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear and will forgive their sin, and I'll hear their land, I'll hear their land, I'll hear their land, I'll hear their with us if my people, if my people who, are who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and if my people, if my people who are called by my name, by my name will humble themselves and seek my faith and if they'll turn from their wicked ways, then I will heal and will forgive their sin. And I'll heal their land, I'll heal their land, and I'll heal their
heal our land Heal our land Heal our land Oh, 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 heal our land If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and seek my faith. Keep me to your Shabbat Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Line Line Ministries. Welcome to our Arab Shabbat broadcast, and we're glad to have you. This uh, Sabbath is the portion in Leviticus called Akaremot, which means after the death. If you go back to a couple of Torah portions, to the portion called Shemini, or 8, in that portion, they were dedicating the altar first day of the tabernacle, dedicating the priesthood and so forth. And if you recall, the two sons of Aaron uh, decided to offer strange fire um, on the altar when God was bringing his presence down into the tabernacle. And it said fire came out from the altar and killed both of them. And so after the death in this portion is referring to what happened after that event uh, for it. And um, we're still in the process um, in Leviticus where God is defining uh, for us, and let me just recap the book, 
where God is t- giving the instructions to the priest on how to use this tabernacle that was built in the Exodus, and, and then giving instructions to the priest as to, so they could teach the children of Israel the difference between pure and impure, between clean and unclean, between holy and profane. And that the, the responsibility of all of us as believers, and that's what's going to be coming out here very shortly in this portion, is about how the, the, the great theme of the Scripture is about uh, us to um, walk before the Lord holy even as He is holy. Well, if we're going to walk before the Lord holy, we got to have a biblical definition. We got to have God's definition of what holy is. And in accordance with the book and the teaching of Leviticus, we learn that there's certain things with regard to idols that we're not to be associated with, only with the God of Israel. We learn that there are certain things about food that we eat. We don't eat the blood of the animals. Uh, We don't eat strangled animals. We eat animals that were mercifully slain, that we sanctify the life of the animal. We give the blood, the life of the animal back to God, but we receive the flesh, the tissue for us to eat for nourishment. And there's a, a clear distinction with God about which animals are acceptable for that and which animals are not acceptable for it. Thus, we have the instructions about kosher. But then it goes on further, and it gives instruction with regard to uh, another appetite that we have in life, and that is about uh, sexual activity. And God has established and defined marriage from the very beginning uh, with Adam and Eve, and he wants the rules of marriage, according to the law, he wants the rules of marriage to be kept, and you're not to mix marriage with other sexual activities. For example, you can't marry your in-laws. You can't, uh, uh, you can't marry your own kid. Uh, you can't, uh, can't marry, if you're a guy, you can't marry another guy. Uh, if you're a woman, you can't marry another woman. You can't marry an animal. Uh, all of those are defined by the book of Leviticus as abominations as lewdness, as perversion. And so those instructions are given specifically because if we're going to be God's people and we're going to um, uh, be appropriate for his kingdom and appropriate in his house, then we have to take on the nature of him instead of having this other nature that would be after the things of the world. And so that's the reason why we have this instruction that's given to us. Now, the other interesting thing about um, all of that is that if you fast forward, I'm sure Ephraim is going to cover this in the New Testament portion. If you you fast forward uh, into the New Testament, um, the, the Jewish people, and including the disciples, they felt very strongly about this business of clean and unclean. And they had gotten to the point, and that was common thinking in their day, that a Gentile, someone other than Israel, they were basically unclean. They lived in unclean lands. They ate unclean things. They did unclean kinds of behaviors. 
and um, the, the roots of homosexuality and pedophilia and all of these things come out of the Greco experience, the Roman Greco world, you know, for it, uh, abortion came out of all of that. And, and God said to Israel, you're not to be any part of that. Well, here we are um, in the New Testament now, period. And the first thing that happens is God gives uh, a vision to Peter. And he wants to send him up to, um, to Caesarea, to a Roman, essentially a Roman city, a Roman port there on the Mediterranean coast. There's a man up there, Cornelius, who's a Gentile. He's a Roman centurion, and he's a good man. He's an honorable man. He fears God, and, and, um, uh, and he's praying and asking God to help him, and God, through a vision, sends uh, Peter up to his house to share the gospel with him. And if you remember there in Acts chapter 10, that vision that he got, he had, Peter literally had to receive a vision uh, to be able to do this, and the vision was... God brought all these unclean animals down, you know, Leviticus 11, on a big sheet, you know, and that big sheet would be laid out for a feast. And he brought all these animals down, and he says, eat. And, of course, Peter's reacting. He said, oh, nothing unclean has ever touched my lips. You know, I, I can't possibly do it. And the vision ends, and these men appear at the door asking him to go to this Gentile's house. Well, he, he goes, and God pours out the Holy Spirit, and Peter is the one who preached to Cornelius. Cornelius and his whole household is saved, and later in Acts chapter 10, uh, Peter recounts the vision, recounts what has taken place, and he said, this vision was given to me, so God was telling me that I was to no longer regard the Gentiles as unclean. I'm not supposed to take Leviticus and the instructions on this and just slap it over the top of other people, that God knows how to go out and get other people and bring them in so they're clean too. They, he's not to render that judgment uh, carte blanche on top of all of those people. So when we get to Acts chapter 15, and this is when Peter and Paul are assembled in Jerusalem. Paul's been out on the missionary field, and he's led a whole bunch of Gentiles to the Lord. And these Gentiles have come back to Jerusalem with him, give testimony of how they've accepted the Lord. And some Pharisaic Jews who were believers, they had this strong, uh, Gentiles are all unclean uh, posture. And when they saw these Gentiles come in and heard what their testimony, then they're, they're trying to deflect them. And so they said, well, uh, you can't be saved until you are uh, circumcised like us. And there's a big argument about that, about, because they're arguing about the doctrine of salvation. And uh, they come for this council meeting to discuss that. What, about, what are we going to do with these Gentiles that are coming in here? And Peter recounts that vision again. He recounts the testimony of Cornelius. And he says, brethren, you see how God used me first to reach to the Gentiles. 
and that they receive the Lord by faith, just like us. They receive salvation by faith, not because of doing certain things that the law specifically specifies, like clean and unclean and, and circumcision and all the other sordid commandments of Israel. That's not the requirement for salvation. Faith in God is the requirement for salvation. And this is what Paul had been arguing, along with Barnabas. So when they had that meeting, James has got to render a judgment now. And so in Acts 15, he renders the judgment, and he says, according to the prophet, and he quotes from Amos, according to the prophets, God has always planned to take a people from among the Gentiles and make them to be part of Israel. That's always been his plan. You know, that when uh, God said to Abraham, in your seed would all the families of the earth blessed, he wasn't just talking to the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was saying, through you, all kinds of families around the earth, people of the nations, Gentiles, they too will come and be a part of this. So he shows that the scripture is foretold that this is what's supposed to be happening. It's obviously happening. But now the question is, how do I deal with this instruction that we have here in Leviticus about clean and unclean, holy, profane, pure and impure? How do we deal with these Gentiles that are coming out of that Gentile world with all of those adverse things? And so the decision is made. James renders the decision that we should not trouble the Gentiles that are coming to faith and tell them they can't come, that, that they, by, by faith they received the Lord, they are saved, they are part of our brethren. But, he said, but that we instruct them on three essentials of the faith. Those three essentials are you cannot participate in idolatry anymore. That you can't eat blood and things strangled. You can't eat unclean things anymore. And three, you can't participate in fornication. You can't be having sexual activity outside of the bonds of marriage. And that these were three essentials. So if a Gentile is going to come in and be in fellowship with, with the Jewish believers, with the apostles and so forth, then these things have to be maintained. And quite honestly, it's what we call the rules of table fellowship. If you have an assembly of believers and you have a person who comes in, and let's say the guy is a womanizer. He has a reputation of going around and committing adultery with other men's wives. You can't be in fellowship here. We're not going to welcome you in so you can pray on one another's wives. If you're a pedophile, we're not going to let you in here with our kids. Uh, and, and other perverse thing, if you're homosexual, we're not going to let you come in here and try to uh, pervert uh, people that are here in this assembly. We're following the definition of holy and profane, pure and impure, clean and unclean, that God has specified for his house. Therefore, you can't come here and be a part of that. Now, that's not to say that they lost their salvation. It's to say they can't be in fellowship with us. So the, um, the point uh, being here uh, is um, 
that they made that decision. They sent that letter out. It's called the letter to the Gentiles. You know, not too long ago, I had a conversation with the, um, with a very strong Baptist brother, and obviously he doesn't um, adhere to the idea of, of the law. You know, he believes in the Ten Commandments, but, you know, he, he, he doesn't know what the Torah is, doesn't know what the law, doesn't know what commandments are. And um, one of the uh, discussion points that I had with him, I took him to Acts 15. I said, you believe in the New Testament? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. You know, you, you follow what the New Testament says? Yes, oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. I said, look at this letter to the Gentiles. This is a letter that was written from James, Paul, and Peter to you. It was written to you. And specifically it says, these three things must be maintained if you're going to be in fellowship with brethren. And I said, have you ever heard of this letter before? Have anybody ever taught this letter to you? You know what? This guy's been in the church for years, and he said, never heard of it. Nobody's ever taught it. And the reason why they haven't heard it and that it's not being taught is because they don't like the conclusion of it. You know, and as I shared with him, he said, I, it was a very interesting discussion. He said, the idolatry thing, no problem. Sexual perversion, no problem. But you're saying I can't eat pork and shellfish, that's a problem. And it's like, he won't give it up. Although it's clear as a bell, God has said, those things are unclean. Don't be a part of them and be part of me. And um, as I've shared with other audiences before, um, it's one thing to eat um, uh, pork and then uh, later on but uh, go to the temple. But if you're still digesting the pork when you go to the temple, what do you think God thinks of that? I don't think he likes that a bit. I think he would see that as defiling his temple. You're certainly defiling yourself. Uh, according to the biblical definition. In any case, um, that's a lot of what this Torah portion is about. Well, that is the setup now. So what would be the Haftor portion that would go with Akaremot? It's a passage of Scripture from the, the book of Ezekiel. It's chapter 22, and it's the first 22 verses of it. And let me just summarize and tell you uh, what Ezekiel is doing here. Ezekiel, this is before the Babylonians came, laid siege to Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and took the remnant of Judah captive. This is just before the enemy comes. He basically is indicting all of Israel and the city of Jerusalem. And he's accusing them of these key requirements that are taught in the law about holy and profane, about pure and impure, blood, things strangled, eating non-kosher. And he's indicting them and telling them they are guilty of all of those things. And basically the people at this point are, um, they're just completely apathetic to anything the prophet has to say. In fact, God characterizes them a little bit later on this one, is that Israel has become like dross. And dross is a term that we use for a metal when it's, there's no more shiny left. It's just a dull, dull look. 
There's nothing polished or shiny about it, nothing that would be attractive about it. It's just dull. And he's saying that the behavior of Israel has become like dross before the Lord. Um, that the people, while they're standing there and say, oh, yes, we believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but there's no zeal. There's no energy behind it. There's no desire to learn more about the Lord. Um, and Ezekiel is warning them and saying, this is what the Lord's been talking about, and if you continue to do this, of which they did, uh, incredibly bad things are coming your way. Well, lo and behold, here came the Babylonians, and they captured Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and hauled the people off to captivity. Uh, you know, at that, and Ezekiel ended up going off to Babylon as well, uh, and was there with him uh, as a part of uh, what was going on. The um, now here's the interesting part. When I was doing some additional reading about this portion, this portion tends to come at this time of the year, just before Passover. And this year, as we are assembling, next week um, is going to be Passover. And they um, have a series of special haftors, this haftor and special haftors, special Sabbaths in preparation leading to um, uh, Passover. One of, one of them is called Zakor, another one is Hakadash. And, and they are to be used as preparatory for um, uh, coming into the Passover. And it's really kind of strange because it's, it comes off like a mixed message. And the write-up that I, that I read on this, it was very insightful to me. The job of a prophet is to definitely send warning to the people to warn of things that are coming that are not so good. And the idea is the warning has to be stern enough and severe enough that the people will be pricked by the Holy Spirit and they'll want to repent and they'll want to turn it around and, and, and avoid that problem. And yet at the same time, they want to throw the doors wide open for God's blessing and redemption. Well, we're coming up on Passover, which is the season of the Feast of Redemption. And so we have these dire warnings just before Passover. And then at the same time, we have these wonderful things that are going to be coming, which is Passover, which is a joyous season, deliverance, salvation, redemption, all of those things. And uh, not only is that a theme of this time of year, and that was the ministry of the, of the prophets. Uh, if, you went, if you were a prophet and you went too severe uh, with, with the harm that was going to be coming, people would become disheartened and give up. If you weren't severe enough, if you didn't give strong enough warning, the people wouldn't react and then they'd be run over by the events that were taking place. As a, 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 you know, you have to 
navigate between the different rocks to avoid a shipwreck and, and to make it happen. And it struck me how similar this is to when we read the last uh, seven letters to the churches that's in Revelation 2 and 3. Here's the Messiah giving final word, uh, trying to correct certain things, and yet at the same time speaking of wonderful and good things that are going to happen. And so there's this mix. And so he lays out what is the problem first, and then he talks about something wonderful that's going to happen. And that the message that, that we get from the Scriptures is like that. And this is the season where we're supposed to, to consider this. Literally, we're supposed to take that matzah, that unleavened bread that comes up at Passover, you're supposed to put it in your mouth and think about, you know, do I have leaven in my life? I need to be unleavened. I need to remove the dross. I need to remove all of those things that are contrary to the Lord. So we have this Passover and this whole feast of unleavened bread for us to figure out what is leaven in our life. Um, some brethren here recently just asked me, and I've had multiple conversations this time of year. Every year, this is the conversation uh, about this. And, it, and again, it fits into this message that Ezekiel's trying to do with Israel, uh, along with these commandments about uh, adverse behaviors and things that are not supposed to be done. The fact of the matter is, people do them. And We've got to remove those things. They have got to get out of our lives. Look at what our future is. Our future isn't part of that. Our future is something wonderful and good. So leave this and, and get ready for what is going to be the future. You know, stop fooling around with the world and get ready for the kingdom. Stop messing around thinking the Messiah is never going to show up. He's going to be coming. You need to get ready for him coming. You need to be mindful of that. Every year, we eat, have this Feast of Unleavened Bread. One of the great questions for all us messianics is, what exactly is leaven? And uh, the wives all go through the cupboards, and they go, are we talking about anything that has yeast in it? What about rice? What about legumes, beans? You know, how about that? You know, um, I can use potatoes and make potato flour. You know, I, you know, are we talking about any kind of flour that could be made into a bread? I mean, potato bread, you know, blah, 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 you know. Um, and you go through the struggle every year trying to figure out what is leaven. Now, let me go ahead and just answer this simple question for most of you. Clearly, the Feast of Unleavened Bread has to do with bread made of a flour in which that there you allow it to rise. And it, and it you know... Uh, has it, it puffs up and becomes a loaf of bread. Then you bake it. Now, clearly, the commandment is talking about that. Nobody seems to have that dispute. They're always chasing their tail about this little detail and that little detail as to whether or not that's leaven. And when it comes to removing it from your house, how far do you remove it? Is it you got to set it outside? You got to get throw it in the trash? You got to put it someplace where you can't access? One of the great stories about uh, the Jewish community is the guy who's the Jewish baker. You know, the baker makes bagels and donuts and stuff like that. Well, all of that is clearly 
leaven. There's the Jewish community didn't have any dispute about that. So what does the Jewish baker do with his business when he's at the Feast of Unleavened Bread? Well, uh, they figured out a system for this. He sells the bakery to a Gentile for $1. And when the Feast of Unleavened is done, he goes back and he buys the bakery back for $1. And that's how he gets around. Now, I'm not suggesting that we play games with it, with the requirements, the commandments of the Lord. What I am saying is there's a lot more thinking that needs to be done about these things. We need to think sincerely within our communities. Do we have a clear line of understanding that we don't tolerate sexual perversion amongst any of the membership? By the way, this is a recent news item of this year. There's a pastor, Southern Baptist pastor, down in Florida, and he was vying to be the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. He's got a very successful church and so forth. The problem is that he had a leading deacon in his church who got in trouble with a couple of women. And one of them was 18 years old. And the pastor did not fire him as a deacon, did not have him removed from the congregation for that. You know, if we're really understanding these instructions, that guy has no business being in leadership whatsoever over any brethren. In fact, unless he corrects that behavior, he should not be permitted in the assembly. Well, the Southern Baptists aren't necessarily quoting from Leviticus, but they've told this fellow, because of the way you've handled that situation, you have no business trying to vie to be the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, and he finally withdrew his nomination uh, from it. These are serious matters in a congregation, uh, all of these issues. Um, and we should not be accepting a mixing of the things of the world with the things of the Lord for those of us trying to obey the commandments of the Lord. We have to watch and guard that all the time. When people come into the faith and they come new into the faith, we need to make sure that we teach them and train them accordingly. Some of the activities that you've been involved in in your life in the past, they have got to stop particularly when it comes to forms of idolatry, when it comes to what you eat, when it comes to perversion, sexual perversion and sexual activities. That is what this whole week's portion is all about trying to teach us. And Ezekiel is laying the heavy message on Jerusalem and upon Israel. You've got to correct these things. If you don't correct them, uh, bad things are coming your way. Lo and behold, the Babylonians did come and capture Jerusalem because they would not listen to this because they had become like dross. They weren't paying attention anymore to these requirements. These are important commandments and important requirements for us, and therefore we should commit ourselves at the Feast of Unleavened to readdressing them, making sure that we've removed the leaven from our lives and from our congregations. 
So that's our portion. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans, to chapter 3, and hold your finger there at verse 19, where our Brit Hadashah portion for this week will begin. And as you open the Scripture, let us turn this time over to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time and this opportunity once again to dig into your Word, to dig into the teachings and instructions that come through Messiah Yeshua. And Father, I pray that you would just make this teaching to uh, come alive. May the Word uh, just resonate with us us with what's going on in our personal lives each week as we do when we dig into the Torah, the Haftorah, and the Brit Hadashah. And so, Father, I thank you, Lord, for this time, this opportunity once again to minister, to share, and to teach, and to speak your word. We thank you for this time. In in Yeshua's name, amen. So our Torah portion this week is Acharemot, which means after the death. Um, This is normally taught as a double portion with the uh, subsequent portion, Kedoshim. Uh, But for this year, a leap year, we have uh, these portions separated into two separate teachings. Akaremot, which covers Leviticus chapters 16, 17, and 18, has a theme that runs all the way through it. While it's talking about the instructions having to do with the priestly offerings for Yom Kippur, it also talks about how the life is in the blood and that we're not to eat or consume blood. And then Leviticus 18 is all about sexual immorality. The theme that is woven through every bit of it is blood. It's the sanctity of blood, what we, how we are to have a reverence for blood. The blood is where our life comes from. If you see your blood, if you lose too much blood, that is how you physically lose your life. And there is a correlation of blood to life. That every time a sacrifice was called for in the Torah and in the instructions, um, it always had to do with that you were offering life to God, that it was an offering of of life, that it's the most valuable thing that each and every one of us have, that is the only thing worth giving to God. And that we recognize that blood has this value to it that far surpasses anything else in all of creation. So when we're talking about our Messiah, we're talking about the sacrifice that he made. And many of people plead the blood of Christ. And we thank God for his sacrifice of his son, Yeshua, and that we use and we claim that it's his blood that is the propitiation for our sins. And so that's the theme that we have for our Brit Hadashah readings for this week. We're going to begin in Romans chapter 3 at verse 19, where it illustrates and points to the fact that it is the death of our Messiah, Yeshua of Nazareth, or Jesus Christ, if you prefer, that it is his blood that is the thing that has given us the forgiveness of sins. Beginning at verse 19, it says this, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth, every mouth may be stopped and that all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore... By the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is Christ Yeshua." 
whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate all, sorry, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he may be justified and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Verse 27, uh, where is boasting then? Is it excluded by what law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. This passage has been used many times to be a uh, contradiction to the law of Moses, to the commandments that are given to us by the fact that um, we have the law and that many people who espouse replacement theology now say that we now have the law of grace. But the thing is this, and this is what the what uh, Paul is saying here in Romans that really emphasizes the need for the law, and that is the knowledge of sin. It's the law that shows us that, that we have sinned. It's the law that shows us that we have sinned, made a mistake, that we have broken the covenant, and therefore need salvation. Because it's, of course, the law that some might call it a curse. When you break the law, when you break the covenant that we have with God, then we are deserving of death, the canceling of the covenant. But the thing is, is that that is the very reason why we need the Messiah himself. The very reason why we need Messiah is because we have sinned. So if we were to do away with the law and to say that it's that, that, that has no relevance, well, then what relevance then do we have for the sacrifice that is our Messiah? And of course, it is his blood that covers us. Back to our Torah portion, where we have all the instructions having to do with Yom Kippur, where the high priest was to make sacrifice and to sprinkle blood upon the articles of the tabernacle and make atonement, or kafar in the Hebrew, a covering over those things so that our uncleanness as Israel does not come upon those holy things of the tabernacle. And that the day of atonement that we recognize that we need to afflict our souls, we have sinned, we have become unclean, and that we then need blood of a sacrifice so that we might be made clean again. And that's exactly what Yeshua does for us. Yeshua is this beautiful, perfect example of what that sacrifice on Yom Kippur and what it is supposed to be to us and for us, that it is our atonement. It is our covering. One of the things I like to talk about and teach when it comes to Yom Kippur and what it means in the scripturally and biblically and in the Hebrew, what atonement means, because in the Hebrew it says kafar, which literally means covering. Well, this is the way I like to see it. And this is the way I like to sort of, you know, explain what's the difference between atonement and salvation. Salvation is um, being saved from imminent death or ruin. We are about to die and then we get saved. That's what it is to have a savior. But atonement or kafar in the Hebrew covering really is actually more like coverage is a good word to translate it. And what do you think of when I say the word coverage? Insurance. It's like an insurance for any future sin that's going to take place. 
that we need the blood of the Messiah at some point in time. We are not going to live perfect lives or sinless life after this point in time, even after uh, coming into faith, becoming a Christian, believing in the Messiah, then even learning about Torah and the commandments. Does that mean that all messianics and people who uh, teach from the Torah and believe in Yeshua, that we never sin? Of course not. We all sin. In fact, our, we will continue to be unclean and we will continue. Our uncleanness continues to be present throughout all of the body and the life of Israel. We know that will happen in the future. So what do we need? We're going to need the blood of Messiah for that too. Just like his sacrifice has paid for all of the sins that have previously been committed. And that's what that offering does. But the beautiful thing about God is that he exists outside of time and his sacrifice that has been made for us goes even into the future knowing that we will sin again, knowing that we will be unclean again. And so that's what, in my mind, the sacrifice of atonement and what Yom Kippur does for us is it is a coverage, a covering that covers us for future sin that will take place. And what it is, is this, our Messiah who has been raised from the dead, who has ascended to the right hand of the Father, he, his sacrifice covers when we sin. I can picture it this way. That when we sin, now, tomorrow, the next day, that our willful defiant sin is deserving of death. And that the wrath of God, if he so chooses, can strike us dead because of a sin that we commit. But what our Messiah Yeshua does is that he then says... He may be to his father. Maybe this is a conversation that maybe happens within God in the scripture. We have the precedent that God talks to himself sometimes. That Yeshua can stand in the gap and say, hold on. Hold on to that wrath because my blood is upon that person. He has claimed and pleaded my blood and the payment and his sacrifice, the sacrifice needed for his sin has been paid. We're covered. It's like having insurance when something happens, but then you have insurance, you're covered. And that's what the blood of the Messiah does for us. And that is how it relates to uh, how it relates to Yom Kippur and how it relates to the sacrifice of our Messiah and what his blood does for us. I also want to read to uh, read to you from Romans chapter five, beginning at verse six, where it says this. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcity, uh, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone will even dare to die. But God demonstrates with his own love toward us that uh, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord, Yeshua the Messiah, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. Exactly what I just said in the sense that, we, that God saved us even though we were sinners. What he said right there at the beginning of it is like, you know, if a, if a bad person, you know, sins, then who will stand up for him? That even if a good person sins, well, maybe somebody might step up. But Yeshua stands up for all, even though we all are sinners. We are justified by his blood and saved from wrath, the wrath of God. 
that in his sovereignty can come down and strike each and every one of us dead at any point in time, may it be his will. But our Messiah and his sacrifice has reconciled us so that we have made reconciliation with God and that then his wrath will not come upon us. What a blessing that is. Now, does that mean that we should uh, uh, (laughs) let grace abound by sinning as much as we possibly can and plead the blood at any given point in time? Scripture says, God forbid, certainly not. That it's not that we are to just continue sinning so that his grace abounds, but that we do recognize that he has saved us even in our uncleanness and even in our sin. And our Messiah Yeshua stands in the gap for us. He is our high priest. Every time that we have received instruction in the Torah cycle about the high priest, we can go to any number of passages, uh, namely in the book of Hebrews, about how Yeshua is the perfect, sinless high priest. And the high priest who stands in the gap, who stands and represents God to the people and represents the people before God and is an intercessor between God and the common man. That's what a priest does, and that's exactly who Yeshua is. And so any of the instructions, especially for Yom Kippur, talking about the high priest and how he goes and stands in the gap for the people, making atonement for the holy things of of the altar and the tabernacle, that Yeshua plays that role. He plays that role as the high priest. And that if you have, like many who believe, have prayed and invited Yeshua into your heart to be your personal high priest of this tabernacle, of this temple, then there comes a time each and every year when we celebrate Yom Kippur, that even though we, we call it a holiday, or that one might say celebrate Yom Kippur, we actually humble ourselves, we afflict our souls, and we are then asking for God's forgiveness, asking for the blood that covers these things and covers us and covers our sin and makes us clean once again. And it is Yeshua who does that work inside our hearts. If we partake in Yom Kippur, that's what we should picture. That's what we should recognize. Picture Yeshua in clothed in more humble garments. That was the other thing about the high priest. The high priest had all of his beautiful garments that he wore, the ephod and the breastplate, and it was colorful, and the turban and the crown and all these things. And this blue robe that had bells on it that rang, and whenever it rang, it actually specifically said that the Lord might know that the high priest was approaching by the ringing of these bells whenever he walked around. Well, guess what? On Yom Kippur, the high priest had to humble himself, take off all of those beautiful garments, the garments of of glory and majesty, and he just had it on very simple, plain garments, white linen, white linen uh, tunic, white linen turban, and that was it. And then he went in and did that work. And you can picture in your mind when Yom Kippur rolls around, think of our Messiah. Think of how he humbled himself, though he is crowned a king and was destined to be king of all Israel, and though he stands at the right hand of the Father now, He comes humbly into your heart, not in garments of majesty, but he goes in and he makes atonement for the uncleanness that is present in our lives. That is what I encourage you to picture when when Yom Kippur rolls around, and that's exactly what's going on, as Yeshua is our high priest. Now, I said before also that our Torah portion is uh, also all about, um, it's all about the uh, blood, that we are not to eat the blood, that life is in the blood. Whenever we make a sacrifice, that we are not to 
um, consume the blood. If anyone eats blood, that they are to be cut off from among their, the people, and that that is completely an inappropriate thing to do according to the Torah. Well, then we have the very interesting exchange of our Messiah with some of his people, some of his followers, in which he goes and he says something that's very profound about him and about his life and how we are to recognize him as the bread of life. And after this, many people fell away from the faith, particularly from the commandment that is in our Torah portion. If you would turn with me to John chapter 6, and beginning at verse 41, let us read this story and this interchange that happens when the Messiah is speaking. The Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, the father and mother we know? How is then that he says that I have come down from heaven? See, they know that he had a natural birth, and so they're asking this question. Verse 43, Yeshua therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets that they not all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who is heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. And he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread can live forever. These things he said in the synagogue that he taught at Capernaum. Verse 60, therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying, who can understand this? Then Yeshua knew in himself that his disciples claimed about this and said to him, does this offend you? What then, if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. But, they are, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Yeshua knew from the beginning that uh, who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my father. From that time, many of the disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Yeshua said to the 12, do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. 
And we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Yeshua answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it, for if he... Um, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. So we have this entire exchange about the Messiah speaking, and he's speaking to a great number of people, great number of disciples who have already come to believe in him, yet he came and he had this very in-your-face, if I could say that, testimony about how you have to consume him as if he were food, as if he were the bread of life, and he'll have to eat of him, eat of his flesh, drink of his blood. Now, because of our commandments and instructions that come to us in Leviticus chapter 17, we immediately, you go, it's all like, no, we're not to drink of blood. This is unclean. This is inappropriate. This is not how it should be. But if you go back to that instruction, what is the main principle that's being spoken here? Rather than listen to the words of the Messiah and sit there and say, nope, that contradicts Torah and let me walk away. Let us look and ask and examine. It's all like, wait a minute, this man espouses Torah. This man teaches Torah. Why would he say such a thing? If it becomes a, you know, something that you, you immediately see this contradiction, I have seen people simply question entire parts of the scripture because there was a contradiction. Rather than looking and saying, how can what, he, what, him, what, is, what he's saying, how can it actually confirm what is being spoken? Is he talking truly about being a cannibal and eating his flesh? We, of course, know that's not what he's talking about. He did not offer himself as a sacrifice and somehow command the disciples to literally eat of his flesh. What they're talking about is living his life. When it says that life is in the blood, that truly you have to live as he lived. You need it so that it's as if his blood is your blood. His flesh is your flesh. His life is your life. That's where all life comes from, from food, from nourishment, from sustenance, from, from, from eating and drinking. And to have those things, that's what gives you life. So when he's saying eat of him, it means truly be sold out for living your life as he lives. When he says that he gives you everlasting life, we're not talking about mortal. We're not just talking about bread that you eat and then you're hungry a few hours later. We're talking about a life of pure satisfaction that is living in him, according to him, according to his word, and being surrounded perfectly in the will of God to live as he lived. And many people, they, they found this too, too much to, to partake. Think about this. He had all these followers and there were those that walked away and followed him no more, even while he was on earth doing these teachings. Because what he said, it, 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 it kind of rattled their paradigm. You know, where it says, don't, don't, don't drink blood. Now, he's not advocating for the drinking of blood or the eating of human flesh. He's not doing away with the commandments. But he's simply illustrating that if somebody cannot get past what's right in front of them or that they sit here in their paradigm of their life of exactly what they've been taught and the way that they've been taught, if someone comes along and says something, even if it sounds controversial, but you yourself already had this faith and belief in that he was preaching a good word, that people were already followers of him. They had already seen miracles performed by him, yet they walked away. How many people's lives have been rocked when you came into faith in Messiah Yeshua? 
How many paradigms were crushed and shattered when the Lord finally made himself known to you in your life? And then even if you were walking in faith as your belief in Messiah, suddenly your paradigm was rocked again when you realized, hey, there's a whole lot more at the beginning of the book and in the commandments of Moses and and the Torah instructions that point us to the Messiah, that those things aren't done away with, that God did not do away with Israel and then establish the church, but it's all one story, all cohesively one. One message, one gospel that comes through our Messiah Yeshua. Our paradigms have been rocked before. So when he says something that's controversial, what it is is it's not for you to take it literally, but for you to stop and let the Spirit speak to you. Don't let your flesh be the thing that responds, but let your spirit respond. And when you feel like life, the life that we have is that we have a desire for eternal life. Yes, we all want to have much more life than can be had in, in in our mortal lives. And the Messiah gives us that if we have the spiritual faith in him and live like he lived, walk like he walked, that is how we receive this eternal life. And he chooses us. And he, even though he knew one of the 12 was going to betray him, he knows that we have sin amongst us. He still chooses to walk with us as long as we stay faithful to him. And we learn from his teaching and his instruction. This is a life that needs to be lived, to live sold out fully for our Messiah. And that's what it is to eat of his flesh and drink of his blood. Another passage that has to do with our uh, Brit Hodeshaw portion for this week comes to us from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Because we have the uh, chapter of Leviticus chapter 18, which deals greatly with sexual immorality, then there's a couple of passages that deal directly with this exact same thing, this exact same phenomenon. In fact, Paul had to write a couple of letters to the Corinthians specifically covering this particular commandment. When there's certain things and commandments, instructions in the Torah that are called an abomination because the way that is inappropriate, uh, inappropriate sexual relations, which all once again has to do with blood. It has to do with the mingling of blood and bodily fluids that basically show that there's an offense if there is any sort of improper relationship with somebody, particularly within a family or particularly with certain genders, and that there is the blood is to be sanctified, respected. There's boundaries that are in place for those things. But that, of course, doesn't stop people from being sexually immoral. And the Apostle Paul had to write some letters to the Corinthians regarding these things at certain times. First Corinthians chapter five, it says this, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality that is not even named among the Gentiles. This is him writing to believers who are there at Corinth, that a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up and have not rather, and not rather uh, mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed was absent in the body, but present in spirit and already judged as though I were, were present. Him, ha, uh, him has so done this deed in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you were gathered together along with my spirit, And this power of our Lord Jesus Christ deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Yeshua. Your glorifying is not good. 
Do not, uh, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexual, sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or the um, extortioners or idolaters, since then you would, need, um, you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you to, keep company with, to not keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are in the in, on the inside? But those who are on the outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. This is when he is decreeing, de- de- crying out to these people that when you have such sin amongst you in your body, in your company, in your fellowship, that you are to separate from those things to separate entirely from them, that that is not appropriate to be in the community of God. In fact, it goes back to Acts chapter 15, where we have the letter to the Gentiles that whenever anybody was coming into faith in Messiah, but the question was, hey, they were from the nations. What are, what are the rules and instructions for them coming in? Well, there's a couple of very important things that they need to abstain from. They need to abstain from drinking blood, Oh, by the way, that's related to our Torah portion as well. Things strangled, meat sacrificed to idols, and fornication, sexual immorality. That is what they needed to abstain from. There's a bare minimum of what they need to do so that they might keep themselves clean and so that this is what's allowed into the community. But then that doesn't stop people from sinning and there to be these things that are among us. Now, when you need to separate from those things, there needs to be a boundary barrier. And when you find out about someone that has these issues, then you have a problem within your community. At the same point in time, there was another letter that Paul wrote. Specifically, that whenever it says to read this passage with this Torah portion, it says, don't forget to read 2 Corinthians chapter 2 along with it. Because once again, there's always this level of discernment that's needed where whenever it's like you need to work out whether what is the sin, whether it's obvious, what what, did these things really happen? You need to govern amongst yourselves before you make the decision that you're going to cut ties with somebody who is in your fellowship or in your congregation. You have to make sure that there is, I mean, is there repentance in their heart? Did they truly, I mean, or are they continuing in this sinful behavior? Let us read this passage that goes right along with it to make sure that there is a balance to the discernment that is had. Second Corinthians chapter two, where it says this, but I determined this within myself that I would not come again to you in sorrow. But if I make you sorrowful, then he who has made me glad, um, then he who has made, makes me glad, but the one who is made sorrowful by me. See, he's recognizing immediately, look, if I immediately said, and I responded to somebody and said, look, oh, you got to kick them out. It's all like, we're going to leave them to the, de- the let, let Satan be the judge of him, sacrifice that flesh, have him be out of these communities. At the same point in time, if there is ever any hope that that person could be reconciled to their God in any way, shape, or form, it's all like, I, I, I don't want to give this message of sorrow that there's absolutely no hope after a point in time. 
He continues on about forgiving the offender. And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came, I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you that all that um, in you, all that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that they should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man. So that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. For to this end, I also wrote that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven any, uh, anything, I have forgiven that one of your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. We, of course, know that our adversary will tempt us and will cause sin to become rampant inside our communities. And we could give in to that and we could understand that it's like, okay, Satan's going to do that. So every single one of us at some point in time will fall or fail with, with some type of sin. But what we have to do is that he, and he's trying to teach is all like, look, we should still have forgiveness in our hearts. Now, if you had to make such a judgment, if you had to render someone out of your community because of a certain sin or because of whatever something someone might have done, there still has to be a forgiveness of that person. And Paul is trying to teach us that. He's trying to speak that, it's all, that, that there has to be forgiveness. Now, you might have to set a boundary, but we are still commanded to forgive those that sin against us or have some form of sin like that. It's a challenging subject, it is. And whenever you come across this certain circumstance and when sin becomes known, becomes apparent, that then it becomes an issue within an entire community, especially sins of a sexual nature. But we ultimately have to pray for God's discernment. We must still show forgiveness for those that have sinned. But even if we have to set up that boundary and barrier, I don't think Paul is contradicting himself. He's not, saying, he's not completely undoing what he instructed us to do before and to remove certain kinds of sins from our, that, that God considers an abomination and removing those from our midst. But at the same point in time, let not the sorrow or the grief of that sin or for maybe the family member or somebody who had, to, who had to make that separation from someone else. Do not let the grief from that sin or the punishment that came later consume us to where that we are, the, the sin continues to have an impact upon our lives and continues to hurt and damage our relationships in our communities. If you've made the separation, then make the separation and we move on. And for your sake, forgiveness has to be had. And you cannot let what sins have come in the past to be a grief and a sorrow that carries into the present day and even into the future as well. Just like our Messiah and our God who has forgiven us and he says, I will remember your sins no longer. Not that he's forgetful, but that the punishment of the sin is, of, is null and void. The payment has been made, the blood has covered the sin, and that the punishment does not come any longer. We too have to have that same forgiveness. 
And we have to move on with our lives and not let the grief and sorrow continue when these sins come about. So this is the Torah portion that comes. And in fact, with it being Akare Mot, um, we're reminded once again that the title of this Torah portion came after the death of Aaron's sons. And if you think about it, what did Aaron have to continue to do even in the loss and the grief of losing his sons? He still had to continue to serve in the tabernacle and continue to be the high priest for all of Israel. And each and every one of us have our own ministry that we have to serve, whether it starts in our families or whether it's with our brethren or in our communities. And no matter what comes, grief, sorrows, death, sadness, sin, punishment, we still have to continue to lift ourselves up like a righteous man who sins seven times a day to pick yourself up one more time to continue to live a life according to God and how he would have us to live our lives. I pray that this is an encouragement to you wherever you might be on this Sabbath day. And thank you for joining me for this teaching. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for this time. And Father, for this instruction. Father, uh, cause grief and sorrow to not come upon us, even in the midst of sin. And Father, I pray and I plead for your blood, Father, to cover all of our sins, all of our transgressions, all of our iniquities. Give us atonement. Give us salvation, Father, for all the things that we have done. Father, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for your son, Yeshua, that he is the perfect fulfillment of all of these words, these teachings, and these instructions that come from Torah. We bless you. We worship you, and we praise you with every action that we take and with all of our lives. And Father, we thank you for your sacrifice, and we thank you for your blood and for your life. And that the instructions that are given to us here in our scripture, Father, that we might live by them. We thank you, Lord, for this time and this teaching. It's in your son, Yeshua, we pray. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of Yeshua the Messiah, the Prince of Peace. Shalom. Shalom.